This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham joined me to talk about federal politics. Then, Parisian author Agnès Poirier joined me from Paris to talk about her book, Left Bank, Art, Passion and the Rebirth of Paris, 1940-1950. Left Bank explores the intellectual, literary and cultural flourishing during Nazi-occupied Paris and after liberation. We also spoke about the many connections and relationships, sexual and otherwise, that were essential to such an intense and productive period. And then finally, I spoke with Patrick Mullins, all the way from Canberra, and he joined me to talk about his new book, Tiberius with a Telephone, The Life and Stories of William McMahon. Patrick is the inaugural Donald Horn Fellow at the Centre for Creative and Cultural Research, and his early brief version of this book won the 2015 Scribe Nonfiction Prize for Young Writers. You're tuned into Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. And as usual, I have our regular commentator on federal politics to chat about all of what is happening in Canberra in the last sitting week of Parliament. And naturally, there is uh, not only what we expected to happen, which is a flurry of uh, debate and jostling of priorities for which legislation will be debated on and voted on, but also the surprise move uh, just after turn, uh, sorry, not Turnbull. God, I can't keep up with prime ministers. Just after Scott Morrison <laughs> announced when he intended to hold an election, which is next May, we saw Julia Banks, the member for Chisholm, uh, stand up in Parliament and reveal that she will be leaving the Liberal Party effective immediately and turn to the crossbench as an independent. Ben. Big, big news. Well, good morning, Amy. Good morning. Uh, Yes, so um, I think we can sum it up with an unhinging in the Liberal Party, uh, part 112. Uh, yes, it's it's been a, a, a terrible week once again for the coalition government as their internal civil war just spills out onto the pages of the newspapers once again. It's really dismaying in a way because not only is it somewhat hilarious from the outside, but if you think about it, I mean, Julia Banks is quite an eloquent, intelligent woman who has been bullied by her party Essentially, that's how what she claims has happened. She's reported some of them to the police because some of the bullying became so extreme that she, you know, felt threatened. And she's that's the reason why she has left. Is she said the uh, the conservative wing has drowned out the moderate voices in the Liberal Party, and there is no room for her. She doesn't belong there anymore. Yeah, it's got pretty nasty uh, inside the Liberal Party over the last couple of weeks. Uh, yeah, so Julia Banks, uh, last Tuesday, I believe it was, after our show, she yeah. um, she chose uh, a moment to make a speech in Parliament, basically leaving the Liberal Party, um, and she blamed it on, yeah, absolutely, the drift of the Liberal Party towards the right, towards the Conservative faction. Um, she claimed she'd been treated very badly by some of the members of the party. This all goes back to the spill, of course, mm. to Malcolm Turnbull's removal back in August. Uh, Banks was pressured and, and really quite uh, intensely pressured by several of the male members of the Liberal caucus to sign that letter, sign that um, petition. The petition, that's right, to get rid of Malcolm, including by uh, Michael Suka, her, um, her Melbourne MP colleague, um, and, and uh, you know, 
uh, accounts accounts differ on what actually happened inside that that office but you know there's there's talk that there was you know real intimidation levied against banks you know so people sitting on her desk sort of leaning over her really basically saying sign on the dotted line julia banks and mm. she's a smart savvy woman she's had a career in business and in corporate law and i just think that she wasn't going to take that and and this is really the the genesis of her decision to leave the liberal party i think she's also sort of sniffed the wind a little bit had a look at what happened in the victorian Victorian. state election Mm -hmm. which in which there were massive swings in the very suburbs where her seat is and then thought well i'm a much better chance of getting re-elected as a a moderate centrist independent woman sitting on the crossbench with people like kathy mcgowan so um that's what i think she's going to do it's a very smart move um she certainly said she's considering her options over christmas in terms of the, the next steps that she'll take as to whether she will run but it's probably obvious that it's likely she would given that the crossbench has grown by two people in a week Yes, and this is a symptom, not a cause of the Liberal Party problems at the moment. You know, this is just one in a, a series of, of brush fires, if you like, or small battles. Wildfires. In, yeah, wildfires inside the conflagration that is the, the contemporary Liberal Party. Um, up in New South Wales, there's a, a very vicious factional brawl has broken out over the pre-selection mm. of Liberal Conservative Craig Kelly. Uh, Kelly is the member for the seat of Hughes, which is a safe seat in Sydney. And uh, there's been a, a pretty concerted uh, branch stack. Well, you know, maybe maybe it's just a, a factional realignment, you might mm. say. But at any rate, um, Kelly was all set to, to lose his pre-selection for the Liberals there. And um, he got pretty upset about that and um, basically called for the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, to intervene to save his pre-selection. And that's what happened yesterday. So Morrison has pressured the state executive of the Liberal Party in New South Wales to call off all the pre selections basically and to mm-hmm. overrule the, the decision by local liberal members there and to guarantee uh, Kelly his pre-selection so that led in turn to an intervention by former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull who got on the tweets and sent out a series of tweets uh, saying you know this is outrageous how can you do this mm-hmm. um, so I mean it's just really ugly basically inside the Liberal Party right now there's a lot of internal hatred viciousness uh, you know they're kind of like bad Exes, really, like uh, it's sort of it's sort of like people after a bad relationship breakup where they're just fighting and they don't really like each other, and everything each other does is a betrayal, and they are bitter and and they are horrible people. Um, and if you want a, a bit of a taste of this, you can turn to uh, today's edition of the Australian newspaper, which has about five or six articles on why Malcolm Turnbull is a terrible person. He's evil. He should uh, be expelled, Ben. Uh, yes, indeed, uh, he should be expelled from the Liberal Party. Some people are saying. And and um, there's a feature piece here by none other than Carolyn Overington. Uh, page 11. Page 11. It's a big photo of Malcolm holding an umbrella, looking sad in the rain, and it's entitled Misery and Malice. <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm Turbill is ruthless, vengeful and malevolent. But wow. we knew that, right? It's Carolyn Overington. <laughs> So, it's nice alliteration. So if you want a little bit of a taste of the Liberal Party unhinging, pick up a copy of Today's Australia. Yep. That's, uh, for it's those, a moment in time. It is a moment in time. Uh, maybe you could pick up some popcorn while you do it. <laughs>
I don't know, Ben. I'm not sure how much I want to sacrifice my sanity. Uh, a lot of people have pointed out that Craig Kelly is the MP that has said to many women who complained about the harassment they experienced that they need to toughen up and that they're uh, being, you know, he, he's denied that there's any problem with women in the Liberal Party. Uh, it's interesting that the Labor side yesterday decided to point out that uh, no Prime Minister, Malcolm or Scott Morrison, intervened in women's pre-selection battles where they lost, not only uh, those women such as Anne Sudmarlis and Jane Prentice, but also Jim uh, Moylan, who's just lost his spot on the Senate ticket. He's now so low that he won't get re-elected. Uh, there's a lot of hypocrisy uh, finger-pointing going on and uh, little smirks from the backbench. Oh, there certainly is. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it's a terrible look, obviously. For, for those voters who are even paying attention, which, mm. you know, probably there aren't that many, uh, and maybe that's just as well because if you were, uh, all it underlines really is the disunity and chaos within the Liberal Party. And, and it, it, it's interesting to, to think about how quickly it's all unravelled, you know. It's, it's, it's really only a couple of years ago that Malcolm Turnbull was riding high, uh, well ahead in the polls, looking like he would cement a two- to three-term majority for the Liberal Party um, and and be a very, very successful Prime Minister. And really, as a result of these internal machinations, this internal civil war within the Liberal Party, and it's an ideological civil war, as we've mentioned several times, you know, it's really, it's about ideas and about the future direction of the Liberal Party and the conservative movement in Australia. And so they're playing for keeps, and they mm. have been prepared to tear down a sitting Prime Minister, and they have been prepared to really to wreck what was a reasonably popular government in order to try and set the new ideological agenda of the party and and this is the result you know and then there was a hilarious moment this week at the G20 which is the sort of big international meeting of of global leaders um which was um overseas obviously um and you had this uh, remarkable uh, moment where Angela Merkel was uh, sitting next to Scott Morrison and someone snapped a photo of her actually looking at her <laughs> program to work out <laughs> who, who, is who he? he was. <laughs> there's, a fo- there's actually a headshot. Photo. There's a photo of, of uh, Scott Morrison <laughs> on the notes that Merkel's looking at, so she's trying to refresh her <laughs> memory. It's like, oh, who's the Prime Minister of Australia again? Yeah. Oh, the, this bloke, that right? <laughs> so, and who could blame Angela Merkel because uh-huh. this... This is apparently her seventh Australian Prime Minister. <laughs> so, it's insane. You know, um, it is it is sort of beyond a joke. And yes. I, I think, you know, it's doing damage to Australia internationally, not just domestically. I agree. Well, Donald Trump also asked, who are you and where did Malcolm go? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's a fair comment, you know, yeah. I, I think a very reasonable question and one hilariously, that the Liberal Party still can't really answer. No answer, exactly. Uh, And interestingly, Scott Morrison has quickly moved to cover his back. Last night they had an emergency party room meeting to update the party room rules around changing uh, the leadership after a general election where the person has, the person in charge, the leader of the Liberal Party, has won uh, the election. They cannot be deposed or even voted on uh, their leadership if they get two-thirds of the party room uh, to, to make a list or to basically voice their support for a, a spill of the leadership position. So they've raised the bar substantially higher now in order for any leadership change to occur. 
Yes, that's right. Uh, they've passed a, uh, another sort of regulation, if you like, or an internal rule that means it will be harder for them to swap leaders. But whether this actually reduces the instability within the Liberal Party um, remains to be seen because I don't think it will uh, because, you know, the, the problems are much bigger than simply factional manoeuvring, as we've discussed. You know, they really are ideological and they really are about big-picture philosophical issues mm. about whether the Liberal Party will be a conservative party a highly conservative party, um, as many in the the right of the party want it to be, or whether it will tack back towards the centre of Australian politics, the middle ground, which is so conspicuously abandoned and which has cost it so dearly in the Victorian election and Wentworth and probably in the upcoming federal election too. It has, and we can see that uh, given that the announcement has been for a May election that Scott Morrison is looking to minimise the damage that will be occurring because of a minority government and the complete disunity in his own party by uh, announcing the federal parliamentary sitting calendar and basically meaning that there will only be 10 days in the first eight months of sitting and that is the least amount of sitting days since Federation. Yeah, it's nice work if you can get it, isn't it, Amy? Isn't it? Uh, the part-time parliament, Labor has dubbed it. And, Barely uh, part-time. It's hard <laughs> to. It's pretty hard to justify a sitting calendar like that. I'd have to say, even with an, uh, an election coming up, uh, and what it really speaks well, it's to. Two thirds of the year. Yeah. Um, exactly, you know, and and so what are they going to do in Parliament? Well, they're not going to do very much no. because they don't have enough sitting time to, to do anything. Uh, and it's so ironic, isn't it? Because it, right at the moment, um, Peter Dutton and the government are trying to ram through an encryption bill mm-hmm. where they get to spy on even encrypted applications on people's phones like WhatsApp or whatever. And they're saying, we've got to pass it. We've got to pass it. You know, it's national security. Uh, and yet, if you look at their sitting calendar, they've barely uh, allocated enough time to even discuss it in the highest legislative body of the land. Uh, So there's all sorts of internal contradictions here. Um, But I think it's more broadly it speaks to not just the desperation of the Morrison government, but it speaks to their legislative bankruptcy because they actually don't have really a policy platform. You know, if you were to ask Scott Morrison what does he stand for, he'd probably say something like, I want to keep power prices down or I want to keep the economy strong. But there's no real policy or legislation that Morrison wants to get through in the months before the next election. And consequently, there's sort of nothing that they really want to do in Parliament. And of course, the more time that Parliament sits, the more mischief Labor can make, Mm. the more private members' bills that people like Karen Phelps can put up to the lower house and potentially get through. And so they're trying to minimise the damage. But um, it's a terrible look. And voters are rightly outraged, I think, by this kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I don't think it could possibly mean anything good for a May election if they don't even work. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, this is a government that's presided over stagnant wages, you know, an economy in which uh, ordinary workers uh, are not getting pay rises, really, of of any kind. Uh, And yet at the same time, they've granted themselves, you know, this very luxurious working calendar where they're they're barely turning up to work. I mean, I, I think we need to be a little bit you know, nuanced about this because... They're still working in the background. They're still doing things. I mean, the government is still the government and the the ministers are still having cabinet meetings and there's still regulations and policies and money and things like that that are happening in Canberra. But, you know... Well, you need to sit to pass legislation. You need to sit to have committee meetings that looks at legislation... 
And it's accountability too, isn't yeah, it? Because if the Parliament's not sitting, then the Senate can't do its work to review legislation, mm-hmm. to look at things like this terrible encryption bill, which is a bad law that shouldn't be passed, to do all of the Senate estimates. Um, the budget's coming up in March, which is pretty soon, you know, so... Yeah, no May budget. Uh, so, look, yeah, absolutely. I totally agree, Amy. I mm. mean, it's it's an outrage, really. It is. And for once, uh, Labor has not used hyperbole at all when Senator Penny Wong uh, remarked that essentially Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton blew the process up in reference to the Parliamentary National Security Committee that was considering this encryption bill and that has in 15 previous instances come up with a bipartisan uh, bill or legislation that has then passed the parliament. So it's a generally highly functioning committee and they were uh, at the point of a compromise deal uh, that would see this legislation to be very targeted to potential terrorism and uh, sex offences, child sex offences. And uh, even then it's questionable as to whether that is a good thing or not. Uh, But we've seen here that that's just another distraction. It's another way to uh, deflect from the internal issues of the Liberal Party. Yeah, I mean, um, let's talk about the encryption bill. So this is a bill that would essentially create a backdoor, um, allow the spy agencies, but also the state police forces uh, to spy on people's encrypted apps. Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of technical discussion about whether they can actually do it. Mm. Um, And also that it opens up potential security concerns um, because then it means other hackers or um, people, digital terrorists, can potentially use means to access government agency technology. And that's what other companies have brought up, is that this could then make Australia vulnerable to attack. Well, there's no doubt about that because these things, they're a little bit like viruses, really. They never stay in the laboratory, so to speak. So at some point or other, they tend to make their way out into the wild where they can be used by criminals and indeed terrorists themselves. So, uh, yeah, once you create a sort of skeleton key or a backdoor entry into these apps and to these technologies, uh, then you are kind of, I think, asking for trouble because eventually they do get used against you. Um, But I think the broader problem here is um, what is the problem that this bill is trying to solve? And and I, I don't think that there is the need for it in my in my own opinion um i should say that the law enforcement agencies do think that there's a need for it and they do think that it's a security risk mm-hmm. they, they say they need to be able to surveil people's encrypted apps of course they would say that wouldn't they yes um and um you know i think this comes in the context of really bad failures on behalf of Australia's security agencies in a number of our domestic terrorism incidents in recent years where they've had suspected terrorists, you know, supposedly on watch lists and haven't been watching them. Yeah. Uh, like the Burke Street attack, for example. That guy was on a watch list, but they weren't watching him. So, you know, I, I don't know. Um, it seems more of a resourcing issue rather than um, whether one needs to access encrypted communication. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the other the other issue I think here is, that is it going to actually prevent any terrorist attacks? You know, and, I, and I'm very sceptical of that. Mm. I'm speaking with Ben Eltham, the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. Ben, we said we were going to mention and discuss the Labor energy policy uh, because they've put forward a plan which is um, they're seeking, I guess, to 
re-shift the debate around energy and also to highlight the uh, the division around energy policy, which is a massive, one of those massive ideological issues in the Liberal Party, the National Energy Guarantee, which essentially was one of the policies that was immediately preceding the Turnbull unravelling. Uh, what did Labor announce and, you know, what was the general response to it? Right. So, yes, I did say that we'd go and have a chat about this. Um, I would say that um, we still don't have all the details from Labor. So Yes, well, they said there was another part of their energy policy to be released as well. Yes, that's still rolling out. We still haven't really seen the full details. But um, long story short, what they've decided to do is to take Malcolm Turnbull's existing policy. Well, it's not the existing policy because they got rid of it, but um, they were going to implement the so-called National Energy Guarantee, which was a, a really complicated and, and I think unnecessarily complicated energy policy uh, that would essentially have a bit of a emissions intensity scheme baked into it. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so what Labor wants to do is to take that, take that structure, that policy structure, and strengthen it and to ramp up the emissions reductions targets using that policy. Um, so that, that's the kind of long and the short of it. What they, what they haven't done, and I think this is significant, is they haven't gone back to their previous policy in government, which was a carbon tax. So mm. they're, they're shying away from any mention of those horrible words, carbon and tax. Yeah, they're scarred by Tony yep, Abbott. Yeah, absolutely. They're... Um, they are they are very scarred. Mm. I think there's no doubt about that. And um, every time this sort of this thing comes up, you see Labor running a million <laughs> miles away from any mention of a, a, an ETS or a, a, a carbon tax. That's yep. for sure. Um, and and I think it also drives a lot of their bitterness actually against the Greens too, because they still like to mention that the Greens voted down the CPRS mm. oh a whole sort of nine years ago. Um, so what? It's not, a, it's not a carbon tax and it's not an ETS, but it will effectively be an emissions intensity scheme. So it will impose a regulation on emissions of a type, which we believe will reduce emissions. And it will basically work on the energy sector. Now, what they haven't announced are any policies outside of the energy sector. So we don't have any policy from Labor on coal coal mining, coal exports. Uh, mm. They've been conspicuously silent about that. Adani, yep. particularly. Yep. So they're continuing to sit on the fence about the Carmichael mine in Adani. Adani has put out another statement saying that, yes, they are going to still try and build the Carmichael mine. Um, again, people are a bit sceptical about whether they will do it or not, but mm. they say they're going ahead. Um, and there's a whole bunch of new coal mines on the books too in Queensland and in New South Wales. Um, and so, you know, Labor's got some hard thinking to do there about what they want to do about coal mining in the future. Um, they've done nothing on other sectors of the economy either. So there's nothing on transport, a huge emissions sector. Um, they've signalled that they will try and strengthen some of the emissions regulations for cars and trucks and things like that, but we haven't seen the details of that yet. We've seen nothing on agriculture, and agriculture is obviously a big area too. So Huge. land use, um, 
agriculture cows for example mm. cows burping is a really big source of, of greenhouse gases and farting yep so so i would have to say that in terms of labor's energy and carbon climate policies at the moment it's very much a work in progress yes and the other part of that policy is the subsidies for home batteries that would connect into the solar panels that some people may already have installed on their roofs um, and they are looking to provide two thousand dollars for households with incomes under $180,000 a year but that uh, then opened them up to criticism Um, really a bit tragic in terms of the comparison but it was called pink bats to pink batteries uh, talking about this you know, horrible time when Kevin Rudd, uh, you know, had the pink bat scheme and some parts of it went wrong and there were disastrous consequences for a few people who died from that situation. But it seems like a rather unfair comparison to make, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Um, I mean, let's let's debate the, the policy on its merits. Mm. Uh, is it a good idea to, for people to have batteries in their home? I think it is. Yes, that's good. I think I think we should applaud that. Yeah. Um, is it the cheapest way to reduce carbon emissions in Australia? No, it's not. It's absolutely not the cheapest or most economically efficient way to reduce carbon. Mm-hmm. We know what that is. It's called a carbon tax. Uh, <laughs> but um, so it, it's what we used to call an, an, an additional or an ancillary measure. Mm. Um, it will have a, an effect on the margins. And obviously, um, as more and more Australians have solar, um, being able to link it up to batteries means that they can be less and less um, reliant on the grid and, and that will reduce their, their energy consumption um, in terms of how much power they get out of the grid. And, of course, the grid still being mainly coal-powered, um, that will reduce emissions. Mm. Um, but it, But it's really about making consumers happy and and Labor's sort of seen the writing on the wall there I think from the Victorian election they've seen how popular renewable energy is for ordinary voters and they've looked to to do a big giveaway really for voters on renewable energy Um, I should say that there is some really positive stuff in the Labor policy and and I think one really big win is the 10 billion dollars extra to the Clean Energy Finance Corporation which is the kind of green bank or renewable industry bank that's been investing in renewable projects particularly at a grid scale, and it's Mm. funded lots of really positive projects, wind farms and solar farms, Um, you know, and the the amount of renewable energy that's coming onto the grid in the next few years is actually going to make a big difference to power prices. It is going to reduce power because, guess what, wind and solar are now cheaper than coal, even existing coal. That is true despite what some uh, people might say, including Matt Canavan. There's st- I mean, I'll just say one more thing. There's still so much misinformation and yeah. just straight-up lies in this debate. Uh, even on Q&A last night, I watched uh, Linda Reynolds, the Western Australian senator who Q&A had got on. Mm. Um, they must have struggled long and hard to find a Liberal woman to get onto Q&A, but there you go, they found one. Um, and even then last night, she was saying... Just straight up misinformation, like things like Australia's emissions are, are falling. She said, "Wrong, it's a lie. No, They're yep. increasing. They're actually increasing at their fastest rate for seven years." Mm-hmm. She said, "We're going to meet our Paris commitments. We're on track to meet our Paris commitments." Again, wrong. That's a lie. We're not on track. In fact, we're going in exactly the wrong direction. Emissions yep. are increasing when they need to be reducing. So, you know, um, 
and, and unfortunately, Hamish McDonald didn't hold it to account on those two. Um, you know, the government's still trying to run this line that, hey, no, it's all fine. You know, yeah, we're 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 here. You know, nothing, nothing, nothing's to worry about. We're we're doing the right thing, and it's just not true. No, it's not true. And to cite the facts. Uh, Greenhouse gas emissions have gone up 1.3% on the previous quarter and they've gone up 0.6% on the previous year. So there's the hard and fast facts of the situation. Yeah. Emissions are rising because the government has got rid of the policies that were there to reduce emissions. Exactly. Um, and I just want to finish on some things that I think are quite revealing of Scott Morrison and his priorities and the differences between the two parties. Something that I was particularly disappointed by uh, was the fact that we saw the annual Parliamentarians Against Family Violence event on Tuesday, last Tuesday, and this is a really important event. Um, it highlights the fact that the the government needs to do more. Kelly O'Dwyer, the Minister for Women, did attend, uh, but Scott Morrison did not attend. He instead attended the opening of the Sky News studio in the Canberra Press Gallery. <laughs> yeah, well, it does say something about his priorities, yeah. Doesn't and, it? And I think that... Um you know, it, it says it says that for Morrison, even now, the Liberal base, the Sky News watching Liberal base, is the most important thing, and that's a. I think that's a. It, you're right, Amy. It's an absolutely graphic demonstration of everything that's wrong with the current government because they are so fixated on their own internal problems that they are actually unable to get on with the really important issues and what could be a bigger and more important issue than family violence. Exactly, uh, and yet. You know, I mean, you know, I'm always a little bit reluctant to criticise politicians for not turning up to this or for turning up to well, that. Well, Bill Shorten turned up, Malcolm Turnbull turned up the year before, so it certainly set a precedent. Yeah, I mean, if it's in Parliament, I don't think it's that hard to turn up. Um, and, you know, what is this government's approach to that issue? You know, they've gone completely quiet on it, mm -hmm. really, since, since the coup, but they've gone quiet on most policy issues because they're completely transfixed of their own navel-gazing. So. Yep. You know, there's just not much policy of any type going on except that kind of policy that's happening in the background that, you know, the ministers are just doing with very little scrutiny. Exactly. Uh, and it points out or it highlights the division even more when we see uh, people like Cabinet Minister Kelly O'Dwyer saying that the Liberals are now widely regarded as, quote, homophobic, anti-women, climate change deniers, unquote. Yep. Well, you know, I think... It's a fairly accurate assessment there from Kelly O'Dwyer. Yeah, that was post the Victorian election results. So some very, very wise words. And uh, obviously she herself is feeling the pressure given that she's in a Victorian seat that could also be under threat. Yeah, I mean, to even imagine that Higgins could be under threat, her seat of Higgins, which takes in suburbs like Malvern, mm. Turak... And uh, was the seat of Peter Costello for many years. The seat of Peter Costello. It, it, it's the bluest of blue ribbons, you know. Um, and, and so to consider that, that O'Dwyer is worried about her own seat, I think, tells you just how much trouble the Liberals are in. Mm -hmm. They're in deep, deep trouble because they've drifted away, not just from middle Australia, really, but they've drifted away even from their base. They've, they've completely misunderstood where their base is at. And there's a whole bunch of people who vote Liberal um, who do believe in climate change, 
who do believe in same-sex marriage, who do happen to believe that Australia needs some kind of energy policy, you know, and, and these are the people who are completely disgusted with what's going on in the Liberal Party and, and find the shenanigans that goes on on Sky News every night uh, alienating mm-hmm. and, and, and don't like the direction that the Liberal Party is heading in. Any wonder. Ben, it's been great speaking with you again about federal politics and, of course, I'm sure there'll be more to discuss next week when we wrap up the year and talk about what has been happening. Oh, is that next week, is it? Yes, it is. Right, okay. Get ready, get your notepad out. Yeah, okay, it's been a big year. A lot has happened. It really has, yeah. (laughs) We might need a bit longer than 25 minutes. Okay. (laughs) Thanks, mate. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. This is Amy Mullins with you and I'm delighted now to have with me on Skype from Paris... Agnès Poirier, who is the author of a book called Left Bank, Art, Passion and the Rebirth of Paris, 1940-50. Hi there, Agnès. Hello, good morning. Hi, it's great to um, to have you on the show. Now, you are a journalist and you write a columns for many newspapers such as the New York Times and The Guardian, The Observer, and also some French publications. So you're really engaged in uh, politics and culture over in Europe, particularly in uh, Britain and France, I believe. Yes, I divide my time between London and Paris and I uh, studied in both cities and uh, I um, arrived in the UK in my early 20s, finished a PhD there, which I didn't complete in the end, because I I, uh, started straight away to uh, write for French daily newspapers on um, what was going on culturally and uh, and politically in London. It was at the time a very vibrant and very open and very interesting city. it's still pretty uh, interesting, but for other reasons, I'm now covering Brexit. It's a great background uh, to your perspective that you're bringing to this book and the approach that you've taken. Um, as you said, you didn't complete your PhD, but you studied history at the London School of Economics. And uh, obviously, this book brings a historical rigour to the left bank in Paris in a particular decade that is extremely tumultuous, capturing World War II and uh, the immediate aftermath of World War II. What was it that first prompted you to think there was a story behind the left bank and how did your story evolve? Well, first of all, I had already written four books about um, France and Britain and how they do things differently. They were uh, light, short essays, the kind of essays a a journalist can write after uh, 10 years having been an acute observer of the different ways, you know, two countries uh, bicker and and love each other. And I just wanted to do something completely different. I had the feeling that I had exhausted, in a a way, uh, the subject of a Franco-English love-hate relationship. And as you you say, I studied history uh, at the LSE in London, but before that uh, at the Sorbonne in Paris, as well as political sciences in in Paris. And um, I wanted to do something much more ambitious, a sort of cultural history that would read like a thriller, but would be very rigorous um, in terms of history. And so I, you know, I'm born in Paris, 
I love its history and what Paris does to uh, to people who uh, visit it. And um, the um, the 1940s seem to be a, a very good decade in the sense that it it starts terribly badly. And uh, a lot of things happen in Paris that are still difficult to grasp from if you're British or American, because the experience of having lived in occupied Paris um, was very, very special. It was a very ambiguous time, if you like, and we refer to those years as the darkest hours of uh, French contemporary history. And But then, of course, there is the elation of the liberation of Paris, which is still quite difficult to put into words 70 years later when people recall it because uh, luckily there are quite a lot of people who uh, who live through those wonderful moments who are still with us and and of course the archives um, and then so the the immediate uh, aftermath is this elation after such terrible years and also a lot of projects a lot of uh, um, a lot of hope and it is not yet uh, the cold war it hasn't settled yet and so they are those wonderful and very exciting years where a lot of intellectuals, a lot of artists, a lot of writers gather uh, in Paris and try. In the end, they will fail, obviously, to prevent the Cold War from settling and happening. But uh, they tried so many different things and um, the the great political parties, I mean, will be able to talk about all those mad schemes. And and strangely, it all takes place in, in Paris. It is really surprising having read the book. It is such a a drama and it just is, it is gripping, as you say. I think it is kind of like a thriller. A lot of people who aren't familiar with French history may not know some of the twists and turns. They might know the ultimate outcome, but not how we arrived at that outcome. So I find that whole journey that you follow in this book really fascinating. And uh, you're following some very important historical figures, some who would be well known to many who may have studied them at university or just found an interest in them, such as Jean-Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, and obviously they're engaged in fiction, but also um, philosophy, non-fiction. And I'd really like to talk a little bit about them first, because they're kind of there throughout the book and then bring in the other characters many in Australia may not be familiar with Beauvoir and Sartre as well as the French. So in your research and in your view, when you're researching these two really important figures, what were some of the unique arrangements or or controversial at the time practices they were engaging in that were there to enable their artistic and creative output and intellectual flourishing? Well, to start with, you know, there were philosophy teachers uh, before the war and aspiring writer, uh, as far as Beauvoir was concerned. And um, Jean-Paul Sartre had uh, published the first book just before the war. But really, they were uh, teaching philosophy at uh, Lycée in Paris, and they were already shattering social conventions. They did things that weren't done at the time. That is to say, they would take their their students who were in their late teens, uh, to cafes, for instance. They would break the hierarchy, if you'd like, between a student and their professor and their teacher. And uh, they were also pretty young, so it meant that uh, they, they just didn't want this barrier between them and, and, and the young people, the young minds that they were um, enlightening. And uh, 
So they would go to cafes, uh, they would discuss ideas. Uh, Sartre, for instance, had a whole collection of American literature and would just lend all his books to his students, uh, Steinbeck and uh, Hemingway uh, and Fitz. Fitzgerald, of course. Um, and so he created a conversation between generations that just wasn't happening at the time. And then the war uh, broke out and it completely changed them. Because before that, as I said, they were philosophy teachers and they belonged in life and a realm of ideas, if you'd like. They were not interested in current affairs. They were not interested in politics. They were above it, if you'd like. And, of course, France is invaded by uh, the Nazi uh, army and and South, like many other French uh, men, is uh, made a prisoner of war, brought to Germany. And he tried to escape uh, three times, third time lucky. And he arrives in Paris and, and Beauvoir is elated and, and to uh, see him again and she thinks it's going to be a very romantic reunion, and and it's not at all. Sartre can only uh, is is just uh, um, so obsessed with what they have to do and they must act, and how the, uh, politics and what's going on in the world is actually uh, a task uh, for philosophers for everyone. It's a kind of uh, responsible um, um, collective responsibility, and you know, in a way, this will be the beginning of existentialism as we will know it a, a few years later. So, what happens is that Sartre and Beauvoir in the early 40s try to set up a sort of resistance cell and they go around the country to meet with their philosopher and, and writer's friends. The only problem is that they want to fight uh, the Nazis with words and a lot of their friends just want to fight them really with weapons and they will choose to uh, embrace the resistance uh, and the communist resistance and to do sabotage and to do things that are really risky and so um, Beauvoir and, and Sartre just uh, realized that they will have to uh, go back to their teaching and, and resist in the way they want um, that is to say um, well just with writing and of course at the end of the war they took a lot of flack for not having resisted more and you can't really consider them as great resistance they weren't uh, albert camus who is also in the book took physical risks in in a way that south and, and Beauvoir never did he had uh, forbidden you know um, documents carrying uh, them uh, from one place to another from one resistance hiding place to another and he was also carrying weapons and things like this but you know, despite the fact that there were not great resistance during the war, the war completely shaped and informed the intellectuals uh, they would become and we would uh, get to know um, after the war. They will, in '45, they uh, started a magazine called Les Temps Modernes after Charlie Chaplin's uh, film, Modern Times. And it was, it was monthly and it was one of the most remarkable literary and news um, and analysis, news analysis of the time. When you read it, Today, it feels and it reads as revolutionary as it was then. And it is often assumed that new journalism was born in the streets of New York in the 50s. Well, I can tell you it was born in 45 in the streets of Paris because that marriage between literature and reportage 
is exactly what uh, you find in Les Temps Modernes. And this is the magazine where you first hear about the problems in Vietnam, in Indochina, French Indochina, for instance, years before uh, the war broke out. And and a lot of uh, reportage about, uh, for instance, illegal abortion um, in uh, back streets in Paris, things like this, which were very, very uh, dimmed, very scandalous at the time. Indeed, and they published many of their associates and friends, uh, such as Albert Camus, also Merleau-Ponty, a French philosopher as well, and uh, they discovered a lot of new emerging writers. But they also, as you say in the book, were really keen to have conflict in their pages, um, particularly, uh, I can remember the, is it Arthur Kessler and Merleau-Ponty and uh, that back and forth around uh, his book Darkness at Noon. Yes, completely. So they were um, really discoverers of talents. What they did with the in their magazine is that they would uh, publish an extract uh, of of a book that was about to get published or didn't have a publisher. But because they believed so much in the talent of those people, they wanted to, in a way, to uh, make them discover to a wider public. For instance, they published in translation Richard Wright, the great black American writer who was very well known in the States, but not uh, known at all in Europe. And they also uh, published Samuel Beckett, for instance, uh, years before Samuel Beckett became Samuel Beckett, if you'd like, uh, and known to a wider world. And they also published uh, Nathalie Sarraud, who is one of the big names of what we called Le Nouveau Roman, uh, which would sort of emerge on the literary scene in France in a few years later. And they loved, as you said, debating. And I think it's uh, it's a rare quality today because what they really enjoyed was to debate with people that didn't agree with them. And in order sometimes to change their opinion. They surrounded themselves with intelligent people, but people who didn't think necessarily like them, people with a wide range of opinions. So it really made for uh, an agora, if you'd like, a place where you could have very vivid conversations, but still remain courteous and, and, and change the opinion of others or have your opinion changed. And it's so unlike today when we tend to talk to only people we agree with and we, like on social networks, we just block everyone who we feel is too offensive and so therefore we only talk to a very, uh, you know, there are chapels of thoughts but no connection between them. So they, they really served a purpose of, uh, a sort of crossroads between not only cultures, because they were translated, their magazine was not only read in the whole world, but it was translated also. And uh, so there, it was a global conversation. There were so many interesting firsts that I recall. One I was really particularly taken by was David Rousset, who wrote uh, a range of things, but one such thing was uh, an 800-page novel, Les Jours de Notre Mort, which was really about uh, the machinery of concentration camps during World War II. And as you say in the book, it was prior to that uh, very famous book by Primo Levi, who uh, wrote as a, a Holocaust survivor from Auschwitz. 
Yes, completely. And and David Rousset was this extraordinary man, and he managed the feat uh, before Primo Levi did of writing a very powerful account of his time in uh, concentration camps because it was very dry, very analytical. I mean, dry, I mean, in a, in a good way. Yes. It was not emotional and it was showing very clearly the sort of mechanism of the show of the uh, of the Holocaust and of the concentration camp machine. And it was recently uh, re-edited in France and I would really highly recommend anyone reading it. It's been translated uh, in many languages. And uh, that was also one of the aim of the book, is for, for people to actually go back to all those people and all those texts. That's, some of them are out of print, but you can find very easily secondhand, uh, very cheap uh, editions, um, and again in, in English, but also in other languages. And because some of them, like Arthur Kessler that you mentioned earlier, it was this lion of, of world literature. And uh, by uh, one of his most uh, famous book is Darkness at Noon. And um, he has sort of fallen into uh, oblivion. And, uh, and it's a shame because he's uh, written uh, some remarkable books, uh, like uh, one of my favorite is The Scum of the Earth. Um, because as an alien in France, he was born uh, Hungarian. He was brought up uh, in Germany and uh, went from Hungarian to uh, German speaking and, and German rising. And then he uh, came to France and at the beginning of the war, he was interned because he, he was an alien uh, citizen. And then he fled to London and then he changed language again and uh, he became a writer in the English language. A remarkable destiny and um, at the time uh, a very, very well-known public figure as, as well-known as Sartre, Beauvoir and Camus. Yes, it is very surprising and it's also interesting that in terms of his political leanings, people saw him as not as left-wing as some of the others who were either communist or non-communist but seeking a third way and in the middle between um, the Charles de Gaulle movement and the communists and uh, that certainly, I know you say, caused a lot of political conflict between some of the key intellectuals in his circles and also that in his his career, there were many women who supported him and enabled his work to be in other languages. Yes, well, um, to, to talk first about the, the politics, Arthur Kessler, during those few years of sort of la- a laboratory of ideas, um, was very close friends with Camus and, and Sartre and Beauvoir. And they, they all tried very hard to find that third way, that something that would not... Um, you know, they didn't want to be fellow travellers of the Communist Party. They were quite against uh, communism, especially Kessler, of course, because he had known the absurdity of communism uh, earlier in his life. But also they didn't want to um, to be too much uh, enslaved with the American model. And so they tried to find this third way. And Jean-Paul Sartre tried in a very pra- practical way, because with his friend David Rousset, um, he uh, set up a political party in 47 and 48. He founded the uh, Rassemblement Démocratique uh, Révolutionnaire as if there was a revolutionary centre. It's still, you know, the same idea. I think we're, uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, in France today would be quite sympathetic to that idea. 
and and everybody was very interested. There were fifty thousand members at some t- at some point. There was an impetus uh, elections with representatives. But what of course happened is that different people in the in the party uh, had to uh, to part ways because some were pro gaullist That is to say let's say, a little on the right-wing side, and some were more pro-communist, and they just couldn't resolve their differences. And, you know, at the end of the book, Arthur Kessler chooses uh, what he calls Pax Americana, you know, the American way, because he thinks it's still more preferable than the Soviet Union. And and Beauvoir and Sartre uh, think that actually they can't stand Pax Americana. They also can't stand uh, Soviet Union, but they prefer in the end to side more on the left and therefore with the communist. So it's, um, and then of course the Cold War starts. Uh, that's just uh, after after the book. But what what is actually Perhaps the only success is that uh, in the manifesto of Jean-Paul Sartre's political party that only lasted two years, was this idea that the third was the third way was also about an independent Europe. And I end the book with Jean Monnet and the idea of the common market and of the future European Union. And it's probably how, you know, we had uh, a peace during uh, the last 70 years. And um, and I, if I go back to Albert Camus, because I didn't talk about him, he also, um, he remained friends with everyone, more or less, but he wanted yet another way, didn't he? He really hated the communists, but he really hated the Gaullists as well. And he was a social democrat. Um, he he uh, was for sort of a, a so, social justice, but also... Uh, individualism and and liberalism in an economic way he would probably have been quite happy living in uh, in northern european countries but uh, he died uh, in the early uh, 1960s well that's a an interesting point you make and you begin the book actually talking about the people who are perhaps social democrats themselves and are quite disappointed with the progress that was made or lack of progress that was made by some of the people who should have, in their view, pushed social democracy further. And one of those is Anglo-American historian Tony Judd, who is in fact my favourite writer of all time. And I was really interested in the fact that you had referenced his work, particularly looking at the Paris intellectuals of this period, and the fact that his book he referred to as an essay on intellectual irresponsibility. What type of irresponsibility do you think Judd is referring to there in terms of the group of people that you're talking about? Yes, I was really struck by uh, Tony Judd's uh, book on the uh, on French intellectuals uh, in the 40s and the 50s, because quite typically he was in awe as a student and also because he lived in Paris he was in awe of all those people that uh, you find in in my book and he was terribly disappointed a bit like a sperm lover that they hadn't managed to to achieve more to to even prevent the cold war i mean uh, which is in a way strange to think that you should put so much hope in 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 people uh, as if some people could change the course of history but because they were so charismatic and so incredibly bright and coming up with new ideas all the time and so convincing that even Tony Judd and and many others 
thought they could have done something more. And personally, I don't think they could have done much more because they tried so very hard. And, and then, of course, you know, a few individuals cannot change the course of, of history. But his book is really remarkable and, and, and I would really hi- highly recommend anyone read it. And it's also very scathing against some, uh, you know, some French intellectuals who he believed were too, too lenient towards the, the Communist Party in the end and should have, they should have kept, in his eyes, they should mm-hmm. have kept uh, fighting and fighting. But, but the violence and the, and the flag that Sartre and Beauvoir took, it, they were attacked by everyone precisely because they were so popular with the with the youth and the communists and also uh, the Gaullists and the catholics were uh, find them very dangerous because existentialism uh, was very fashionable and the youth uh, was really uh, um, embracing existentialism which everybody thought could corrupt uh, the youth Yes, well, it's hard to imagine now, although I still think that existentialism is a very radical philosophy in the context of today. And if you actually followed it and lived by it, you would be quite a different individual, I think. But you raised there some interesting points about the criticism of Beauvoir and Sartre is the fact that they wouldn't really take sides necessarily in a really strong or clear fashion, whereas people like Camus were often criticised for being, uh, quote, a moralist and having a strong position on certain political issues. And that is their philosophical approach coming through in the sense that you write, they didn't necessarily make moral judgments. Yes, you, you're completely right. It's very interesting with Camus because he's this moralist and moralistic figure as a writer and as an editorialist. But because let us not forget that just after the war, because he was a committed intellectual, he wanted to have an impact on French and European politics. He accepted to be the editor of Combat, which was a daily newspaper. But in his private life, he was not a very uh, moralistic uh, uh, and moralist uh, figure in the sense that he was completely incoherent, uh, having, uh, as as you know, a lot of affairs um, and and not being a very good husband, nor nor being a very good father. Was I must say, Sartre and Beauvoir were coherent, and that's actually something to admire, and and can be admired them for that because. There was a clear coherence in their political life and in their private life. As students, when they had met and fell in love with each other, they decided they wouldn't marry and they wouldn't have children, which was quite shocking. They came from very bourgeois, very bourgeois background. They wanted to completely break with bourgeoisie's traditions. And they decided not to have children, for instance, because their children was their work in a way, and they were workaholic. They were incredibly disciplined, and they worked eight. They wrote eight hours a day, so it means that they actually worked uh, longer hours, and um, they had a lot of uh, affairs with uh, uh, friends and students. But that's how they, you know they, they talked about contingent loves and essential love. The essential love was their relationship, but they allowed each other to experience and to have other contingent uh, love affairs and and sometimes with their students and they would always remain almost always remain in good terms uh, when passion had consumed itself 
so there was what we call a sort of growing Sartrean family. That's how we, we call it in, uh, in French, la famille Sartrienne which includes, obviously, the Beauvoir family. And they supported financially all uh, those people. Um, They paid for the rents, uh, they paid for everybody's foods, especially during the war. They didn't own anything. They didn't want to own. They just spent and spent lot of the time for others uh, not to have riches not to uh, uh, to have good clothes or or, or uh, to live in luxury not at all and so there there was a coherence that many others like Camus who were more moralist um, at least in the, on the public uh, scene uh, was not yes there is a huge gap between his public views in his private life and he certainly as you write felt very constrained by his domestic life and he felt that that was holding back his professional work and writing. I was looking through uh, an interview by a German uh, friend of Beauvoir and Sartre and they were talking about their domestic arrangement and the fact that they lived in hotels in mostly in separate rooms on the same floor or on different floors and they were very particular in not living in the same room so that they didn't have this domestic tension uh, in terms of who would do what and that they might accidentally fall into uh, some of the traditional societal and behavioural norms of men and women at the time. This is really something which we probably think of as not as radical, but at this time, which is the 1940s, it is really something quite significant. And you say in the book, quote, women had to be very strong in 1948 to be able to assert themselves and plainly to exist. And so... It is really amazing that particularly Simone de Beauvoir, who many women looked up to, including, as you say, Juliette Greco and Brigitte Bardot, she really did blaze a path for other women uh, to look up to and admire, didn't she? No, she did completely. Uh, but she was also brought up like a, like a man by her father, who uh, had two daughters, but really all he wanted was boys. And uh, he could see that Simone was very gifted, and he pushed her. He pushed her, and um, and in a way that really made her. And when Jean-Paul Sartre suggests to her in uh, 46, 47, to uh, perhaps study what we call in French the woman condition, the feminine condition, she doesn't understand at, at first, because she's asking him his advice on her next editorial project. Um, she's a bit bored, she's between books, and he says, no, but you haven't exactly, uh, your your life is different because you're, you're a woman. At first, because she was brought up uh, like a son to her father, she says, no, I don't understand. I don't feel at all different. And then, of course, she has an epiphany because she thinks, okay, well, that might be interesting as a little article. So she goes to uh, the National Library and she starts um, really digging up and, and looking, looking at ancient myths, for instance. And then the more she studies the, the subject, the more she thinks, oh, my God, yes, uh, salt is onto something. Of course, there's a difference. And uh, that little essay uh, or little article which uh, she thinks she's writing 
is going to become a 1,000-page um, and two volumes of, uh, called The Second Sex, published in 48. And, uh, you know, one one uh, work that is still making an impact today. Um, I uh, read it again and uh, and it's it feels so fresh and so uh, controversial because um, she um, she's very straightforward. She's an extremely straightforward writer. And uh, in the second tome, that was a uh, second volume, uh, because it was published at the time in two, uh, in two volumes, people found it scandalous because she was talking about the physiology of, of the reproduction system uh, in women. And she talked about vagina and she talked about clitoris and she talked about all these things. But in uh, um, in not in an emotional way at all, and she was very matter of fact, and and all the more powerful when you read it uh, to, still today. So uh, uh, Beauvoir was yeah a trailblazer, and also as you said, in the way uh, she lived, she was an example really for a lot of young women uh, um, like Françoise Sagan, also the uh, young uh, French novelist, because she was free she was a free woman and but why was she free it's because she was financially independent and that's something her father told her saying you must earn your living otherwise you'll always be dependent on a man on her husband mm. and um, it is absolutely key and of course in the 40s that's quite revolutionary very yes and the fact that she could initially gain a very permanent and secure teaching position is because she was such an excellent student and uh, got, well, the first or second top marks. I know there's a debate as to who should have been first or second between her and Sartre, but it just goes to show just how important it is to have that stability and foundation to be able to work and live and be a writer and focus your attention on writing. Uh, And I know she eventually did become a full-time writer and make money from that, which just goes to show how successful they both were and it's also really fascinating that you draw on the fact that Sartre was very very generous and uh, gave out a lot of money to students in need for various purposes so they're both very generous not only of spirit but uh, in terms of material wealth and means. Oh, completely. Um, I was really um, astounded to to see this. They they had no ambition in saving money, for instance. They thought it was uh, just a bourgeois concept. Also, domesticity, as you said very rightly, they they refused domesticity, and that's uh, much easier if if you're uh, living in a in a hotel and at the time there was nothing luxurious about living in hotels we're talking about very decrepit cheap hotels on the left bank uh, there was a housing crisis in France at the time anyway so it really made sense to live in in hotels and you didn't have a bathroom it was you had to share it uh, it was in on the landing and um, there was really uh, hardly any heat it was not luxurious but it meant they didn't have to worry about domesticity or you know uh, also because they were single in a way you know they had to look after their own clothes and uh, and do their their washing in the in the sink and um uh, and that's it and uh, Sartre always had uh, he was paid in cash he insisted in in being paid in cash um so he had words of uh, of money and banknotes in his uh, in his pockets, and uh, his students remember I met uh, many of them. Remember he would pay always for meals and and sometimes for abortions. His male students would come to him and saying, "Oh, I've got a problem. I really have to uh, find." Uh, and of course, it's 
illegal at the time and very risky. They could uh, they, they risk prison. They, they had doctors friends uh, who would perform abortion in uh, uh, in a good healthy environment, uh, still taking a lot of risks. But uh, and he would pay for it. Of course, he would write plays for uh, some of their protege and and former. Uh, girlfriends. Um, there were the uh, Sostakovich uh, sisters uh, who were always in the shadows of uh, Beauvoir and, and Sartre, lovely former students who uh, thought they were actresses. I don't think they were very good actresses, but Sartre uh, each time co- co- complied and uh, whenever Olga or her sister wanted to, uh, to, to be on the stage, uh, he would just uh, write a very, very good play and uh, have them perform some of the parts. You're raising there a lot of important points, particularly around how prolific and diverse their work was and the different forms that it took. It makes me think that perhaps it'd be useful to talk a a little bit about the situation in occupied Paris, because as you've said, it was extremely important for the story that follows and the rebirth, as you say, of Paris and the artificial and very abnormal, ambiguous environment that Parisians were living in when there were German soldiers that they were basically surrounded constantly by the enemy, whether they were in uniform or not. And the fact that there was not really necessarily a black and white, because not every German soldier necessarily was bad. And you provide some fascinating examples where particular uh, aristocrats and others who are sent to Paris to represent the Third Reich, and they in effect provide some form of cover for the Paris arts collections and also for the writing that was happening at the time. One particular character who is fabulous is Jacques Jajat, not just because he has a fantastic name, but also because he seems to be extremely prescient and quite devious in a good way in terms of what he did with the Louvre collection. I wonder if you could tell me a bit about that story because uh, I found that it really highlighted that ambiguity that existed around uh, the people who were living in Paris uh, during the occupation. So let's start with Jacques Jojard. And I actually wanted to start the book with him because um, he's such a hero of mine. And, and I didn't know about him, really. It's only by searching, researching the uh, the topic. And he should have a statue in the streets of Paris. Yes. Jacques Jojard was the head of the Louvre Museum. He was, um, I think, just 40. And he had had some experience safeguarding the entire Prado in Madrid, the, the Prado collection during the Spanish Civil War. Um, and he had overseen the safeguarding and transport of the collection to Switzerland. So um, he was also, as you said, a very prescient man. And he knew as early as 38, he, he knew France would be at war with uh, Nazi Germany and that probably France would be invaded. And so he didn't talk to anyone, and he planned for the complete evacuation of France's entire public art collection, and that includes Le Louvre, of course. And in the summer before the declaration of war, he closed the Louvre Museum for three days, officially for repair, and he um, asked the staff, uh, the students from the Beaux-Arts 
and also employees of La Samaritaine, which is a big, people who've come to Paris might be familiar with that uh, Art Deco Grand Magasin, just near the Louvre Museum. Uh, and his plan was to put every single work of art in a wooden case. And there was, of course, there was a system of ordering those collection. And on very important work of art, you had a yellow dot on the wooden case. And on uh, world treasures, you had to have a red dot on the wooden case. And there was one case that had three red dots, and it was the Mona Lisa. Of course, he needed a lot of vehicles, not only cars, but ambulances, every vehicle he could lay, lay his hands on. So there were open trucks and some of the very, very, very big canvases like the Rubenses that uh, couldn't be rolled uh, around a silent Linda had just to be um, hidden underneath a blanket on an open truck. And um, every uh, different uh, members of the staff were given a vehicle to look after and off they went just a few days before the declaration of war to different chateaus, some of them you know, grand chateaus we all know, like Chambord, for instance, but also private-owned chateaus that you had discreetly requisitioned to uh, store the public art collection. And by the time France declared war on Germany, the entire public collection was hidden and safe. And uh, he just retreated to his office and just waiting for uh, the Nazis to uh, invade France, which they did eventually, a few months later, after what we call the Fronny War. Exactly. And it is an amazing picture to have in your mind when you describe what's happening and the amazing teamwork that's required. But what is also fascinating is his initial meeting with Count Franz Wolf Metternich, a 47-year-old aristocrat and, as you say, a scholar of Renaissance art and architecture. And he was appointed to go to France and protect art. But as we know, Nazi Germany had very certain preferences for art and they would call some art degenerate art and writing degenerate writing and was obviously very ideological. But when he arrived and met Jacques Rejard, you describe the response of Jacques and his evaluation of Metternich and uh, and his intentions and I found that description really fascinating that on learning from uh, Jacques that the Louvre was empty he had almost looked relieved. Yes they were actually very similar men I mean Count Metternich was of course there as a Nazi officer but he was an aristocrat a Prussian aristocrat and he was not a fan of Hitler. And he uh, actually took his mission of protecting art literally, that is, protecting art also from very greedy uh, Nazi friends of Hitler, like Goering, for instance. And he covered the back of Jacques Jardin for as long as he could, because they had one thing in common, those two great men, Jacques Jardin and Captain Martinique, is that they had only one duty, and it was to art. And... So, of course, at some point, Berlin uh, discovered that Metternich was uh, slightly too much in awe and too much of a friend of Jacques Rougeard, and he was summoned back to Berlin. 
That's one great example um, that you're talking about, Metternich. And we also saw in your story another particularly important cultural regulator or censor come from Germany, Sonderführer Gerhard Heller, who came to Paris and uh, was appointed to basically censor and oversee the literary production of France. And uh, he, as you say, found Hitler repulsive. He wasn't a Nazi party member. And uh, I'm really interested in his particular relationship with that extremely important publishing house, Gallimard, that was in France. Because as you said, there were many small publishing houses that closed at the time, but this other publishing house had quite a range of publications that they were producing, particularly in ideology. Well, Gerhard Heller, who arrived in Paris on his 31st birthday, was such a fascinating character because, of course, he was a Nazi officer, a very young officer. But like Metternich, he was not a fan of Hitler at all. But on the other hand, he was a German citizen. So, um, he had been enrolled willingly. He didn't flee Germany, could have done. So he arrives in Paris and he had studied different languages. He had studied in Italy as a young man, as a younger man, and he had studied in, in France. And it was a dream come true for him, except it happened in such dreadful circumstances. And Otto Abetz, the German ambassador in Paris, gave him you know, the best job of his life. That is to say, to obviously the entire uh, literary production of France. Imagine, 31, and in love with French literature. But of course, he was the, the chief censor, and he also, in a way, had a power of life and death on French writers and French publishers. And at the time, uh, some French publishers decided to close, to close down, and not to have anything to do with mm. Uh, German censorship, and it was probably the only moral uh, answer. But others, like Gaston Gallimard, Gallimard was the biggest uh, French publishing house, decided to play it differently. They, and that's uh, that's really a, a you know masterful uh, lesson in ambiguity. They appointed a sort of in-house fascist, Drieux La Rochelle, was a very very talented French writer. He was also a fascist. And he was appointed by Gallimard just to be the sort of face and amicable face to the Nazi occupants. And through Drieux La Rochelle, Gallimard published a series of anti-Semitic, fascist, uh, Nazi-friendly literature. But at the same time, next to Drieux La Rochelle's uh, little office was the office of uh, Jean Paulin. And Jean Paulin ran a resistance cell from Gallimard. So he was the in-house in resistant. And both men knew perfectly well what the other was doing. But in a way, in a, bit, a little way like Jojard and Metternich, they only had one duty, and, that, and it was to literature. And although Drieux La Roche was a fascist, he really admired Jean Paulin's taste for great literature, even from a resistance or communist writers. And that's how, during the war, Gallimard was able to publish both fascist and communist writers, and under the supervision and the amicable supervision of Gerhard Heller, who also loved literature. 
And he covered the back of Jean Poulon, who he really admired. And for instance, he was given because he, I mean, he he could say no. He he was supplying the paper on which uh, the books were printed, and um, he was given the manuscript of the Outsider of L'Étranger by Albert Camus, and he read it over one night and and called Gaston Gallimard in the morning and said, okay, it's too good not to be published. Um, I will cover your back because L'Étranger could be seen as, mm. you know, for, for Nazi readers, not exactly a Nazi-friendly uh, piece of literature. You could see a lot of uh, uh, sort of core, I mean, the subtext was quite insurrectional in a way in L'Étranger. And, uh, and Camus only learned after the war the part that played this Nazi officer in, in his own success. So, you know, it's, it's a very murky affair. It is. And Gallimard was very important, as you say, in terms of the range of writers who were being published during occupied Paris. And it meant that there was a huge cultural engagement that continued for the entire decade. And uh, a range of those people, uh, you, you mentioned Camus, also uh, James Joyce, Simone de Beauvoir, Jean-Paul Sartre, Paul Morand and uh, Louis Aragon, a communist mm-hmm. resistant. Oh, yeah, completely. And Aragon, after the war, played a big part in the Communist Party, in the French Communist Party, actually, not for better, but rather for worse. But he was also an incredibly talented writer. So mm. he was to uh, communism what uh, the Rio La Rochelle was to fascism. Paul Morin is another very dodgy political character, but a great writer. And uh, so it was, you know, Paris during the, the war was a school of ambiguity. Exactly. One other example that you provide is uh, the fact that these characters uh, provided some form of support or at least collaboration in terms of resisting the attempts of the Gestapo to make arrests against resistance activity. Yes, completely. Jean Poulin uh, would often ask Gerhard Heller to intervene so that X or Y writer uh, wouldn't get arrested or would be freed from uh, some intern camps, which were usually the first stop towards um, concentration camps in Germany. Uh, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. And Rieu La Rochelle also intervened a few times uh, with his Nazi friends to do the same, to uh, uh, protect or free uh, uh, or help the case of writers, uh, resistance writers. It would be great to finish off our conversation by speaking a little bit about the revolutionary ideas that really did flourish in this liberation period. The most important, as really is shown in the book, is this idea of existentialism and the philosophy of existentialism, which was put forward by Jean-Paul Sartre in his lecture, Existentialism is a Humanism, and apparently caused women to faint. But it also meant, uh, as you you write that there were many younger people who were called existentialists. Not only did they themselves adopt the term or the philosophy, but then others were deriding them for adopting this to what they would see as quite radical philosophy of living and being in the world, which was really around the fact that, uh, as Jean-Paul says in his lecture, existence precedes essence and so therefore one's essence is constantly being made by one's actions and uh, behaviours. 
Well, yes, it's still very radical today, existentialism in many ways, because basically it says it, it puts uh, men and women in front of uh, not only their contradictions, but also their actions. That is to say, if you act, you're, and if you don't act, it's the same. You're making a conscious decision not to act. And of course, it was a reference to anyone who were passive during the war. I'm not talking about the resistance or the collaborator with uh, the Nazi occupants. They were acting. But it meant that existentialism was putting a whole majority of the French people who didn't do anything during the war in front also of their responsibility. They chose to remain passive. And this is something they have to live with. And, you know, it's a very um, very liberating, in a way, a philosophy. It means that you're responsible for everything you do or everything you don't do, everything you say or you choose not to say. Of course, it's difficult because uh, freedom is, is limitless, in a way, and, and it means that everything you do has political consequences. But also, it makes you at the center of action. It means that uh, you are not a victim of um, what's going on in in the world or of forces that you have no uh, um, no say on or, or no power on. Uh, no, you are uh, fully active, fully conscious, and and fully free to uh, act the way you do. You only have to bear the consequences. That's a great point, and you highlight the fact that given uh, there were some constraints on people in occupied Paris, the existentialist argument would be you are still mentally free even if you are, for example, imprisoned as Jean-Paul Sartre was, you still have freedom within the constraints you find yourself in and you still have choices to make. Yes, absolutely. And that was actually a very a very attractive new philosophy and and uh, lesson in life for for the youth who had been too young during the war to uh, because they were children to be fully engaged obviously but they had seen their parents grappling uh, with those difficulties and they could now perhaps grow and and um, recover from from the war and and becoming adults in the in the post war and perhaps not repeat the mistakes that their parents did um so it was it was very emancipating if you like a freeing uh, philosophy and um but there are so many people we didn't talk about uh, perhaps all the americans who some of them had fought during the war and uh, henry chose uh, paris to leave their young adult lives as either students or uh, aspiring writers. I think we should talk uh, about Saul Bellow and Norman Mailer and Art Buckwald and also some uh, incredibly uh, successful journalists like Theodore H. White. Uh, but of course, there are too many people can't talk for us. But, uh, <laughs> it's important also to say that there's a lot of jazz yes. uh, in in the book um, and some remarkable woman like Janet Flanner, who was the correspondent of The New Yorker in Paris, uh, a friend of Hemingway. Uh, she was in her 50s because she had been a correspondent in Paris since the 1920s. And and so it's, you know, there are 32 main characters in the book and uh, some uh, uh, not so known people, but they all make a sort of a community uh, of Parisians being of different nationalities. There's also Giacometti and Picasso and Cocteau uh, having cameos and um, coming and going. And as you said, Juliette Greco. 
Yes, exactly. So many musicians and artists as well, not just writers, uh, were part of this story and uh, they are all really fascinating. And you also follow some of the main characters over to America and highlight their response to American culture and American jazz. Uh, and certainly Simone de Beauvoir had a very poetic experience uh, when she experienced jazz in New Orleans. And obviously, even in uh, Paris, of course, there were so many underground jazz clubs that were really flourishing at the time that were so important to the culture there. Oh, completely. And and uh, when Miles Davis came for the first time with Dizzy Gillespie in Paris uh, to perform, uh, it was the best time of his life. Probably because A, he didn't feel black in Paris, having, you know, not feeling the burden of uh, racial segregation. And, and also he was considered as an artist. Uh, his friend Boris Vian, Boris Vian, the French writer who was also a trumpetist and a jazz impresario, took him to meet Pablo Picasso and Jean Cocteau and many others. And those jazz musicians who were really not considered at all in the, back at home in the US uh, were just considered as as big as uh, Picasso in in Paris that really changed their lives uh, and some of them decided to stay and I'm talking uh, about Richard Wright uh, the black American writer but also James Baldwin who arrives at the end of the book and settling in Paris and and Paris and France will save him in many ways he says if I remain in the in the US I will uh, I will die I know I'm going to die either shot uh, dead by the police or, or I will hang my Myself. You know, Paris at the time is uh, is a refuge and uh, uh, and a bastion of radicality. Yes, and a liberator. Uh, it seems that it does free people to express their not only their uh, creativity but also their sexuality and their passion and love. And your subtitle is art, passion, and rebirth. And certainly, what is really strong in this story to me is the fact that although there is quite a lot of sex involved and differing relationships, it's not a means of convenience only. There seems to be so much passion and love and intellectual engagement um, and vigour going on in these different relationships that it's not superfluous and it should take centre stage in this story. Well, completely. It's um, it's part of who they are, and it comes with who they are, and uh, it's because they are all passionate people, and and it's in a time of heightened uh, emotion and heightened historical significance. So everything takes a very a vivid colour. Yes, yes, and there was um, I think so many people who you looked back on, you looked at their diaries and their letters, and some of them are particularly moving or affecting, such as the correspondence between Dominique Ori and Edith Thomas and their very passionate relationship, which was not exclusive. But I didn't realise it was Dominique Ori who was the author of the story of O, which is such a huge uh, erotic novel from France and really um, has taken its place in history alongside other people like Anne Nin. 
No, it's a lovely uh, love story between Edith Thomas, who was a resistance. She was also a um, an archivist and a writer. And she had a rather lonely existence until she met Dominique Ory, who was this very um, discreet, but also very beautiful woman uh, writer, the mistress of Jean Paulin from Gallimard. But she was also bisexual and she fell in love with the editor man. They had this uh, uh, lesbian romance which completely transcended and transfigured editor man. And it's a, it's a beautiful story within the story, as you know. Mm-hmm. There are plenty of different stories. And, and editor man was um, a feminist and, and writing a lot about women figures in French history at the time. But she didn't, she liked the talent of Simone de Beauvoir to, to compete with Beauvoir. But she was also very endearing and very interesting interesting character. Mm. Well, as you say, there are so many characters in this story, so there's no way that we could possibly touch on everyone. But you make a great point, and I think it's an important point to finish on, which is that we should be revisiting some of these people who we don't know and some that we do know and the important work that they were doing then because, as you say, it is still very radical today and extremely relevant uh, with the current situation we find ourselves in. And also very fresh. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for joining me, Agnes. It's been fantastic to speak with you and to be inspired by some of the revolutionaries who really flourished in this decade that we're talking about, the 1940s in the left bank of Paris. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. Now, as I said, I'm speaking with Patrick Mullins, the same Mullins, at least same spelling as me. And uh, that's not why I chose to speak with Patrick. I'm very excited to chat with him because he's written a fantastic book called Tiberius with a Telephone, The Life and Stories of William McMahon. And it's out through Scribe publications and as I said I'm going to uh, try Skype so bear with us if we have any issues we're going to head to a backup option but uh, I'll just see if we have Patrick on the line. Hi Patrick. Hi Amy how you going there? Hi there I'm good thank you how are you doing? Very well very well let's hope. Well, the Skype connection holds up. I think it's yes, dropping a little bit in and out. But. A teeny bit. We'll see how we go, and uh, I can always call you. Um, so thank you for joining me. And, uh, yes, I don't think we're related, but I just thought it was very funny. <laughs> You've written a fantastic... If only we could be. If only we could be. I know. It would have been... What a coincidence. Um, but I'm sure there were quite a few Mullinses in the... Uh, Island and Isle of Man, which is at least where my <laughs> relatives are from. It's probably the Smith of Ireland, and I don't know. <laughs> probably. Yeah. I have no idea myself. Yeah, the unique here, so that's all that matters. Uh, so, Patrick, you've written, well, it's a big book, um, and obviously there's a huge amount of research in here, uh, and I'm really quite astounded at how you've managed to condense it and uh, bring it into a format that has a, a strong narrative, a strong analysis. Um, it's a historically rigorous book, uh, but I just was reading the acknowledgements at the end, and I found that interesting, so I thought I'd start out with that point. Um, you say, this book was written without the cooperation of the McMahon family and without access to McMahon's papers, which are held at the National Library of Australia. So 
in place of that, you've actually gone to a huge amount of effort to interview people who knew William McMahon, one of our prime ministers, and also uh, seek out other archives and libraries uh, in Australia and the UK. And obviously, there's a whole range of other sources of which you can draw on. So that must have been quite a significant feat, really, to not have access to his private papers which are held at the National Library and I'm guessing must have restrictions placed upon them. Yeah, they do. Um, McMahon donated his papers, um, first of all, when he left the Prime Ministership in the 1970s uh, and then he took them back again in order to work on his autobiography. When he died without that autobiography published, they were donated back to the National Library um, under a very, very strict embargo. Um, I sought cooperation from the McMahon family but they declined um, so I didn't have access to those papers. I got around that, though, by, first of all, drawing on the huge amount of cabinet papers, um, the huge amount of cabinet records that are held in the National Archives, and also by talking with one of McMahon's ghostwriters, um, a journalist named David Bowman, who not only retained a diary of his time working with McMahon, but also had copies of papers and some of McMahon's private reflections on events, and I was able to draw on those in the book. Well, I don't. It, it comes across that you don't lack sources, so um, yeah, it seems like there was plenty there. <laughs> yes, look, there's there's a lot of material there. Um, the you know, I mean, the cabinet documents, for example, are voluminous. Um, there's you know, McMahon was a minister for twenty years, so there's twenty years worth of cabinet stuff to get through. Um, there's, there's also a great range of material from the National Library, um, which I supplemented with my own interviews and correspondence with people. Uh, where they were alive still. Yes, that's a really good point, is that, um, you know, some of these people are no longer with us. Uh, and it's interesting you say that uh, he was a minister for quite a long time and, well, he was. He was a minister, um, well, he had a portfolio initially um, which covered the Navy and the Army and then he became Minister for Primary Industry uh, in 1956, Minister for Labor and National Service in '58, Treasurer in 1966 and Minister for External Affairs in 1969. Uh, that's a pretty decent effort, especially because he wasn't necessarily that highly regarded by the majority of his colleagues, or at least that's how it comes across, is that there are a number of people who kept him in the tent, who appointed him to cabinet roles, but didn't necessarily trust William McMahon, or um, they also, I guess, queried his intentions sometimes. He would often go to great lengths to achieve certain goals. Yeah, it's one of the things I find quite interesting about McMahon is that he managed to stay in the ministry for so long and continue to be promoted so often uh, in spite of this derision and dislike from his colleagues. Um, you're absolutely right to say that they distrusted him. They scorned him. Um, Arthur Fadden used to call him Billy the Flea. Robert Menzies <laughs> called him that little bastard. Um, you know, that they absolutely hated his guts. Uh, and the way McMahon managed to work his way through um, certainly inspired no liking whatsoever. Um, but what there always was right throughout his career was an acknowledgement of McMahon's industry, his ability to work, um, and his doggedness, his persistence. Um, one of the things that we might forget when we think about McMahon as Prime Minister um, we think maybe he's incompetent and kind of a bit silly and blowing in the wind. Um, but as a minister, he was actually had a very good record of getting through cabinet submissions, of arguing his positions in spite of the opposition of his colleagues. 
um, which and that I think really kind of girded his success. It was the foundations for his relentless rise through the ministry. Yes, and in some of those roles, he um, rubbed people up the wrong way to um, understate things a little. <laughs> and, Put it lightly. Uh, yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> and it certainly, you know, is quite entertaining reading when you're looking at it. But one of those people, which is quite astounding, was um, Henry or Harry Bland, who uh, was part of or head of the Department of Labor and National Service and became the permanent head in 1952 and is quoted by you as basically being constantly called, telephoned by uh, William McMahon about any kind of idea relating to this portfolio. And uh, Bland says that he didn't really seem to understand his this particular portfolio um what was your take on that um look certainly mcmahon was a prodigious user of the telephone uh and bland is absolutely right to recall being telephoned at all hours of the day and having in fact to take evasive maneuvers like like saying that he was under the house and couldn't be reached or um you know that it's four o'clock in the morning and calling mcmahon back and waking him up to try and stop these telephone calls um one of the things to say though about bland is he absolutely scorned mcmahon but there is, alongside that scorn, an acknowledgement and an awareness that McMahon did manage to do things. Uh, and he, he was, you know, as, as Minister for Labor and National Service, he actually managed to get quite a bit of stuff done, namely by taking on the, um, the WWF the, on the waterfront. Um, he managed to establish the stevedoring industry authority um, to recruit workers for the waterfront. Uh, and that was taken at some points in spite of scepticism from Bland about whether or not it would work. Um, one of McMahon's staffers told me that when Bland heard of McMahon's plan to, to take on the waterfront, he in fact kind of washed his hands of it and said, I'm going, I'm done, and went and hid away in, in the Senate building for a while. <laughs> um, but of course, later on, Bland would, um, would say that this was all his idea uh, and that in fact um, McMahon had been the one to kind of, had to be kind of kept under wraps, kept on a tight leash in order to make sure it came through. Um, Whichever way you look at it, though, there, there is a substance there. Bland kind of had to recognise that McMahon was a bit more substantial than others might have allowed. He wasn't a total lightweight. Yes, well, that's an excellent point. And he gets his doggedness and persistence uh, from, I guess, his childhood that was shaped by a range of factors. And you go through his upbringing or lack of an upbringing, at least by his immediate family. Uh, He seemed to have lacked a certain amount of hands-on nurturing um, by his his parents, his mother and father. Uh, his mother died of, I think it was tuberculosis when he was nine years old and his father died when he was 18. And as you say, he was raised by his aunt and uncle. Um, and he was on top of that separated from his siblings and they were all kind of parceled off, as you say, to different parts of the extended family. What uh, do you think has influenced William McMahon, not only his, uh, his, I guess, the nature versus nurture, the nurturing um, of his family, but also then his uh, studying of the law and, and his work or apprenticeship, essentially, as a solicitor? Um, definitely his, his training. I mean, McMahon came to, to politics, one of the you know, best equipped kind of people to be politician. He had, as you say, that study in the law. Uh, he also had, had study in economics. Um, while in the law, he had invested in a company started up by Frank Packer, 
uh, and thereby gained an ally who would give him all sorts of influence and power um, in years that followed. But McMahon also, it should be said, um, he was deaf, and this did impact him as well. You know, he was kind of couldn't hear things very well, which stopped him going from becoming a barrister. Uh, and it did influence his conduct in the House, in, in Parliament. You know, it gave him that accent, that voice, that high squeaky voice that people like to imitate. Um, and so, again, when you look at that and you think about that in consideration of McMahon's ability to get there, um, it definitely kind of nurtured this sense of persistence and need to win, need to become secure. Um, his that, that kind of tragic upbringing that, that you mentioned, um, of being of never having a secure family home of, of parents his parents dying and, and being sick uh, his elder brother dying as well um, those those gave him a profound insecurity that he needed to constantly kind of assuage by um, by achieving by striving by working uh, and it took him a long time to find security I think Yes, and what's really interesting is the fact that he has witnessed a huge portion of Australian political history and been a key player in it. And he was there um, or saw the uh, Liberal Party formed by Robert Menzies and was elected uh, as a member in New South Wales. And uh, I mean, his pre-selection almost seemed to happen by chance and was uh, quite influenced by the women in the area. Yeah, this is, I think, it's a really interesting story. Um, McMahon was, he ran into a friend of his, uh, Jack Cassidy, a leading Sydney QC, who said to him, oh, you know, look, I'm supposed to be speaking out in Western Sydney today as part of my pitch to be the new member for this new seat that's going to be there. Would you go and speak in my stead, though? You know, I've got a case on. And McMahon went out there and he talked about his studies in the law, about his studies in economics, about his travels overseas to see communism in operation firsthand. Um, and when he was finished, this group of this, these women, this women's group that he was speaking to, uh, he, they asked him to wait outside. And eventually one of them came out and said to him, you know, are you a tyke? Uh, are, you, are you Catholic? That's the question. Um, McMahon obviously is an Irish name, it's County Clare. Uh, and his family, his paternal family, were Catholic. But because of that insecure upbringing, because of his the influence of his aunt and uncle, he had converted to the Church of England. And so he was able to say, no, I'm not. And they said, wonderful. We'd like for you to be the new member for Lowe. Uh, and it's worth saying that those women's groups were instrumental uh, in, his, in his security in, in that seat of Lowe throughout his career. He was always very good with women. He could charm them. He could flatter them. Um, one woman who knew McMahon in this time said to me that he always would kiss the old elderly women on the cheeks, um, and they always used to love it because he was this young, dashing, kind of well-dressed man. But the younger women, McMahon would, you know, not he wouldn't kiss them. He was very wary of entanglements at that time, but he was always very popular with the women's groups in his electorate. Yes, and, well, the Liberal women were also very uh, influential in the formation of the Liberal Party, particularly the Australian Women's National League. So, Absolutely. Yeah. It's, Absolutely. It's yeah. fascinating to see that and uh, and also the fact that they're not so influential nowadays uh, or at least not being pre-selected for safe seats just as we saw in McMahon's pre-selection battle. Yeah, I mean, this is a... Uh, I mean, there are a lot of parallels, I think, between today's political situation and back then. Um, when McMahon was pre-selected, uh, a woman named Edith Shortland was kind of aggrieved. She was really outraged that the Liberal Party had failed to take on um, women candidates. They, I think they pre-selected one for the House of Representatives, Nancy Wake, um, who was pre-selected for Doc Evatt's seat. You know, we're never going to win that. 
Um, and she actually stood as an independent Liberal candidate against McMahon because she was so aggrieved and outraged at this, this mistreatment, pretty much, uh, of the female candidates. Um, McMahon didn't have any trouble seeing her off in that, in that election in 1949, but it's a, a salutary kind of example, I think. Yes, definitely. And I'm speaking with Patrick Mullins and we're discussing his book, Tiberius with a Telephone, and it is the life and stories of William McMahon, one of Australia's prime ministers. He uh, was prime minister between 1971 and 72. Now, you also intersperse this book with excerpts from Bowman, who was, uh, I guess, the unfortunate person who managed or oversaw the creation of um, of a biography that or autobiography or memoir um, that was never published uh, by uh, William McMahon and it was a very very lengthy draft um, and it, I find that really interesting particularly um, the the interspersals of uh, reflection that Bowman has in questioning of some of the circumstances or events that uh, William McMahon recalls and has in his notes and often these notes were taken at the time but uh, Bowman really questions whether all of these facts check out and whether his account of events is actually an accurate account uh, and he he says quote McMahon really is a third-rate politician and that he could be PM is a damning indictment of the country he is really a rather nasty bit of work half truths lies commo can cheap attacks what an unpleasant little turd I mean, that's a very strong <laughs> diary entry, I think it is. So, obviously, it was intended for a, probably a private audience. Yeah. Um, look, the, the diary that Bowman kept at this period working through McMahon, trying to get, get this autobiography right, um, ghostwriting this book that McMahon just couldn't seem to write, um, it, it moved Bowman to such frustration, um, and his diary entries reflect that. McMahon had this inability, I think, to, to reconcile um, the documentary record with his own view of events. You know, he told these stories of him to himself and to other people about himself being so brilliant, about him being always right and wise, uh, constant where his colleagues were unsteady or, or faltered. Um, but, you know, in retirement, when he worked on this book, he couldn't make it work. He couldn't get it right. He had to employ this whole industry of ghostwriters, journalists, academics. Um, they all came and went through McMahon's office between 82 and 88, trying to get this book together and they just couldn't because McMahon couldn't see um, himself properly, couldn't admit faults, couldn't see that this co the stories he had told himself um, were maybe not correct. Um, so, I, I mean, I interspersed these stories in the book because they helped draw attention to, first of all, the way that McMahon um, spun stories and the, the facts that he liked to have. Um, but another way they kind of also help us see how this man was not always this old, befuddled, kind of incompetent-like figure that we know through, um, you know, that we think of as prime minister. Um, he was at times quite a young and dashing guy. He was fashionable. He was thought of quite highly at some points. Um, but trying to kind of grapple those two things together, trying to reconcile and tell that story, um, that was something that bedeviled McMahon and it bedeviled Bowman right throughout the time he worked for him. Yes, well, having those inherent contradictions can be difficult to explain. Uh, certainly now looking back, even more difficult, perhaps not having uh, experienced those events firsthand. Um, but one of the other elements 
around his character that was um, really a source of tension for Robert Menzies, who uh, appointed him to his cabinet, and many still aren't sure why he stayed there, as you say. But he, um, Menzies said roughly, I think you quote, uh, you couldn't trust McMahon not to give away budget secrets if it suited him. Um, His relationship with the press or the media seemed to be an interesting one. How did William McMahon utilise the media for his own political purposes? Oh, well, it it has to be said that McMahon was, in many respects, ahead of his day in the way that he would use the media. Um, He formed a relationship very early on with Alan Reid, was a journalist for the um, for the Packer Press, for the Bulletin and the Daily Telegraph, uh, and McMahon would just drip feed material to read, um, and and he would get favourable coverage out of this. If if you read, for example, Reed's books, The Power Struggle, and The Gorton Experiment, you see this in operation. McMahon is presented in this very noble light, and that's entirely because he was giving this information to Reed to write it. Um, but McMahon would leak constantly to any and all journalists. Um, Graham Perkin, the the editor of the Age was a cadet journalist in Canberra, and one day he recalled McMahon standing beside him at the urinal, uh, leaking, I suppose, in more ways than one. Um, and the next day, uh, seeing Menzies ticking off Pent Perkin about this, about this story that he'd run, came across and joined in, joined in to tell him off. Um, you know, the, the kind of effrontery, the hide, the chutzpah of this guy was, was pretty, um, pretty incredible. Um, but he was ahead of his time. He would use the press to background colleagues, to burnish his own image, to make himself seem um, a much more charismatic, a much more principled figure than he might actually have been. Yes, and uh, it is very interesting that that um, that that's how he was represented, and perhaps may have added to his uh, election prospects and standing in the party. How did uh, William McMahon? gain the leadership of the Liberal Party because uh, John Gorton was the Liberal leader and Prime Minister before him and uh, it's interesting that he managed to grab it and also in very close circumstances. Yeah, this is a quite incredible point. Um, Gorton had come to power in 1968 after the death of Harold Holt uh, and he at first actually canvassed sacking McMahon, moving him. He thought very low low of him. Um, But he kept McMahon on. Uh, but Gorton's direction, the way the directions he was taking the Liberal Party, in particular the kind of nationalism that he emphasised, um, that was in marked contrast to the ideas and the principles of many of the Liberal Party in that time. Uh, these are guys who'd come to power trying to push back against Labour's socialist powers. Um, so Gorton had antagonised the party quite a lot in his first term in office. Uh, enough to prompt a leadership challenge in 1969 after the election. You know, that's an incredible thing straight away, we have to say. You win an election and straight away you're challenged by your party. That's pretty big. Mm. But in 1971, Gorton seemed to think that the coast was kind of clear. Um, he he was felt quite secure. But he had this big brawl. It started through the press and it kind of grew in importance and significance. And he had a big brawl with Malcolm Fraser over backgrounding, over support, over... Um, loyalty as well. And Fraser decided to resign as Minister for Defence. Um, he did so knowing full well that his resignation would very, very likely lead to Gorton's fall and to McMahon's rise. Um, nonetheless, it was a very close-run thing. Um, two of Gorton's backbenchers moved a vote of confidence in Gorton's leadership in the party room, and the vote was tied. And Gorton 
said, well, that's not a vote of confidence, so I resign, and he stepped down. Uh, and it was then that McMahon leapt at the chance. Um, he stood for the leadership. He won it very easily. But at the same time, Gorton st stood for the deputy leadership and became McMahon's deputy. So you, 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 you know, it would be analogous today to um, Malcolm Turnbull standing for the deputy leadership immediately after he was deposed. Um, a kind of ridiculous farcical moment mm. uh, and one that was absolutely unexpected. Uh, when it was announced, one journalist said straight out to the press secretary at the time, you're joking. I mean, you're just joking. Um, but McMahon was there. 20 years of work behind him, um, a couple of months ahead of him to use it to try and see what would happen. Yes. And do you think he was doing some kind of numbers in the background in the event that one day there was a leadership uh, spill? Yes. I, I think McMahon never gave up on the dream of becoming a leader. Uh, and certainly, I mean, I report in the book, Malcolm Fraser's suspicions that McMahon was actually the one who initiated the blow up between Fraser and mm. Gorton. Um, I think McMahon never gave up on it. I think he counted on and was aware of the levels of support for him within the party, uh, but also the levels of antagonism toward Gorton. Uh, and he could use it. He seized on that opportunity, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, it seems very well played, politically well played. Although the outcome, which is he has a, a deputy leader who was his predecessor, doesn't sound like a particularly healthy arrangement. How did that end up? Um, it, it ended in disaster, um, as, it, as it always was going to. Mm. Um, about six months after after he'd become um, deputy leader, Gorton accepted an offer to write some articles, autobiographical articles, for the Australian newspaper. Uh, and in doing so, in writing these articles, he actually reflected on his colleagues. He, he suggested that some of them had leaked. Uh, and so McMahon moved to sack Gorton for doing so. He rang around the back benches. Um, he made sure he had support within the party, made sure he had support within the bureaucracy for doing this, uh, and then moved to have Gorton sacked. He managed to pull it off. Uh, but this was the occasion where McMahon gained that infamous title, um, the infamous name, which is the title of the book, um, called him Tiberius with the telephone in the house. He pointed out that McMahon had sat on the Isle of Capri, had telephoned all and sundry to make sure he had the, had the numbers behind him to sack Gorton. He'd screwed up his courage, but only when he had the numbers. Mm. You know? um, so, I mean, it ended in absolute disaster. Um, but the, the, the antagonism between Gorton and McMahon never went away. Um, for years afterward, Gorton would, you know, couldn't stand to be in the room with McMahon. Um, when there was a suggestion, in fact, that they'd be knighted at the same time, Gorton said, I'm not going to share a ceremony with that little bastard. No way. Um, you know, so the antagonism never went away. Uh, and over the, the remaining months of McMahon's term as Prime Minister, there were always rumours and murmurs that Gorton was preparing for a comeback, that he was mm. going to try and retake the leadership. Um, but it never happened, obviously. Yes, so many echoes of current day that I'm hearing. Uh, and also, in your view, given that you have assessed his Cabinet papers and you've really looked in depth at all of his positions in Cabinet, including as Prime Minister, what do you think uh, we should see as some of his key achievements and perhaps that might uh, contradict or overturn at least some of the negative uh, assumptions or evaluations people have made? I think McMahon's... I mean, the first point I think that McMahon's highlight, the high point of his career, has to be when McMahon was treasurer, where he was pushing for... Um, pushing back against the protectionist line that had been run by John McEwen. McMahon was a free trader from New South Wales, and he was arguing really quite strongly ahead of his time 
that Australia should not be protecting Australian industries quite so much. Um, that won him a lot of enmity, um, most acutely when, when Harold Holt drowned and McEwen vetoed him. That's, I think, McMahon's crucial achievement in politics. As Prime Minister, his legacy, though, his achievements are much more mixed. There are some really good things in there. Um, he passed, for example, the Child Care Act, which allowed the Commonwealth to intervene in the child care industry, transforming it from this quasi-private one to a public one, um, paving the way for its professionalisation, for research, for Commonwealth funding even as well. Uh, McMahon also managed to establish the National Urban and Regional Development Authority um, to, again, provide for Commonwealth involvement in urban and regional affairs. Um, McMahon took Australia into the OECD. Um, McMahon withdrew combat troops from Vietnam. That's, I think, a kind of an important point. He accelerated the withdrawal of Australian troops from Vietnam so that when Whitman came to office, he only had about 200 left to withdraw uh, and they were training troops. So they weren't um, involved in combat operations. Um, McMahon also, you know, he, he did quite a bit of stuff in the sense of he, um, he established the polluter pays principle in the, in the environment. He established the first department of the environment, in fact, as well. Um, but at the same time, there were, you know, quite a lot of failures and, and, and problems. Um, McMahon engaged in quite a bit of politicking over tours of the South African sporting teams. This is during the apartheid era. Um, he was kind of running this law and order kind of campaign on that issue. He failed, I think, egregiously um, on Indigenous affairs. He refused to translate a traditional association with the land uh, into law as a basis for land rights claims. That was a really big thing. I think, uh, and it prompted the development uh, of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy outside Parliament House. He also obviously failed on China. That was a big failure. Um, but, you know, he also lost the 1972 election, um, which for many Liberals was enough to damn him forever. Although it was a tough fight given that he was up against Gough Whitlam in that really famous campaign that uh, got him elected. So uh, can't be too harsh on that one, surely. No, you can't. I mean, look, it, it, it's worth saying that when McMahon came to office, a lot of the reliable planks for the coalition had begun to rot and fall away. Um, communism wasn't really an issue you could campaign on. Vietnam was no longer an issue. State aid was no longer an issue. Um, you know, and, and McMahon was losing vital allies left, right and centre. Um, Sir Frank Packer sold the Daily Telegraph to Rupert Murdoch, uh, and Murdoch turned hard against the coalition he ran right toward whitlam and so mcmahon was kind of battling on all of these fronts um and you know without the kind of support that other leaders of the coalition had had before him so in, in that sense the scale of the loss in 1972 was actually pretty good mcmahon only mm. lost uh nine, you know, it was nine seats that whitlam had in the end uh, and about two and a half thousand votes spread across in right in just the right way across five of those seats would actually have seen the McMahon government hang on by a fingernail, but it would have hung on. Uh, and his reputation today might be very different. Yes. Well, Patrick, you've made a, a, a remarkable achievement, really, with this research and this book. And congratulations uh, on the book, as well as being the inaugural Donald Horn Fellow at the Centre for Creative and Cultural Research, and uh, also winning the 2015 Scribe Nonfiction Prize for Young Writers. It sounds like there'll be much more to come from you, uh, possibly from the archives, and uh, <laughs> I, I really appreciate uh, your time today. No, thank you for talking with me, Amy. It's great. Thank wonderful, you. Wonderful. Oh, good. Thank you very much. I very much enjoyed listening. <laughs> <laughs>
Cheers. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.